I never intended to be Scottish. I mean, it was a surprise to me. For 35 years of my life, the narrative was always that our family was Irish, as Irish as could be. We're O'Flynn's. My name is Patrick Amon. We've come from Cork or Mallow or maybe Limerick. It was the fabric of the family, stitched together by my grandfather, who loved his Irish heritage. The signs were everywhere. His house was full of Irish knickknacks. He had the family coat of arms on display. He named his son Grady. He's visited Ireland many times. When I was in my teens, he took me there, along with my dad and one of my brothers. He wanted us to love our heritage as much as he loved it. And we did. And we do. But then I did a DNA test and learned that I was just 9% Irish. Genetically, that is. Genetics are only one part of your identity, of course. They don't, on their own, define you. But at the same time, the results said I was 63% Scottish, which was an eye-opener. A surprise not just because I thought I was Irish, but because my mother is from England. Like, right off the boat. How could I be 63% Scottish? I'm getting it from both sides, as it turns out. My mom's family might have been in Leeds for many generations, but some part of that family was very Scottish. My dad's part of the family had been in Canada for more than 100 years, in a town named after William Wallace that was full of Scottish immigrants. You don't stay 100% Irish in that sort of circumstance. In fact, I suspect my grandfather, the most Irish Canadian you'd have found had you scoured the country from coast to coast to coast, was less than 50% Irish. Again, genetically. That man was 100% Irish in all the ways that count. The real question is what I should do with my newfound Scottishness. I could ignore it, of course, but that seemed dishonest. Not to other people, but to myself. Now that I know I have this heritage, I don't know how I could walk around acting like the second coming of Liam Neeson. Besides, I'd prefer to see this as an opportunity. It's an open door to learning something new about where I come from, an excuse to expand my horizons. I've tried reading about Scotland, history mostly, but realize that reading can only take you just so far. You can find out what Scotland is like, but it's harder to find out what it's like to be Scottish. I realized that I needed to talk to real, live Scottish people. I needed to learn about culture and society from people who are living it, about food from people who love it, and so on. The best way to get people who wouldn't otherwise talk to you to give an interview is to start a podcast. And voila. Every other week, I'll talk to someone else from Scotland. We'll cover everything from Wallace and Whiskey to Independence and Iron Brew. In the off weeks, we'll share fun mini-episodes that ask our guests to answer five questions in five minutes or less. I don't want to give anything away, but we have some fantastic people lined up. Confusingly good. I still don't know why they agreed to talk to me. Enough with the preamble. Let's get to the show. But first... This is 63% Scottish, a Scotland appreciation podcast. Thank you to Owen Innes, the creator of the Scottish History Podcast, for that wonderful intro. Before we really start moving, I want to do something that is, admittedly, a bit distasteful. This is the first episode of 63% Scottish. I'd love to start with lots of momentum. There's nothing Spotify or Apple Podcasts like more than listeners. Please share this show with anyone you think might be interested. 
If you're listening on Apple, please rate and review this show. Listens, ratings, and reviews go a long way in getting those platforms to recommend us to more people. Okay, no more self-promotion. How do you start learning about a country you don't really know? You ask someone with extensive experience in that country. In this case, I needed someone who'd lived in Scotland, someone who'd studied Scotland, someone thoughtful, someone smart, someone with insight. The answer was obvious. My friend Kevin. Yes, Kevin. Or, as he's known professionally, Dr. Kevin James, Scottish Studies Foundation Chair and Professor of History at the University of Guelph. He is one of Canada's leading experts in Scottish history, and almost certainly its most charismatic. Originally from Toronto, Kevin completed his PhD at the University of Edinburgh before arriving in Guelph in 2000. He has been to Scotland many times. He has lived there. He has worked closely with Scottish people his entire career. His research is about Scotland and Scottish people. I've known Kevin for nearly 20 years. He was my first history professor in university. In addition to being a famously enthusiastic educator and researcher, I found him to be an exceptionally kind and generous person. That's why I was sure he would do this podcast. Our discussion touches on Scottish studies, Kevin's research, the unique elements of Scottish culture, and of paramount importance to this show, potential subjects for future episodes. Enjoy. should say it's recording on your end okay but uh but yes thank you so much for for joining me today this is uh you know i'm i'm very excited first of all we haven't seen each other i think probably in in five years or or something that's yeah uh, it's round about then it's um but uh but you we've been in touch a little bit and i i think you know i i sent you this question but be be honest when i said i wanted to do a podcast about heritage i bet you would have guessed it would be irish right is that uh, well for you yeah for me a name yes. like yours and just knowing where you're from and the dynamics of your family and the history of your connection to the community mm -hmm. uh, yes that had been my assumption <laughs> it's is it surprising to you that i've so thoroughly misunderstood my own heritage is that something that you think is is a surprising thing or is it or do you think it's more more likely than you than people might expect i think it's surprising that you've dug in a bit deeper and just discovered that you aren't all that you were told you probably were and probably thought you were. I think mm -hmm. uh, over time, people develop an understanding of themselves and of their family history that's often grounded in generalizations or in, frankly, in understandings that are that are perfectly reasonable given the paucity of records that exist in particular periods of time. And people fasten onto things like names don't they or they're all religious identities and then mm -hmm. they use that and or big narratives like the scottish uh clearances or the irish famine and often even if their families aren't connected to those particular events they'll feel a strong affinity to those mm -hmm. events in those places as i say those will craft their identity much more so than particular pieces of information that they may not have access to so it doesn't surprise me at all it mm -hmm. uh <laughs> It's the same assumption I made about you, Eamon. That's I, well. I obviously I made the assumption about myself, and and I think in in my case, it's it's due largely to uh, my my grandfather. Who was a very 
a very big personality, and and his Irish heritage was very the the O'Flynn. Um, you know, Irish heritage is very important to him. And so it was, uh, it was always a central conversation in our, our family. So I think it's exactly what you're saying. You know, you, you kind of grab onto certain narratives, certain people drive, drive those stories. And he was very proud of that. But, uh, I have since learned that I, it's a little bit of a different story. Uh, so I, I realized right before we jumped on here that I think it's been almost 20 years since i was since i was in your the first class i ever had with almost you. 20 years is right i think it, just think, shy of 20 years yep and uh so i have faint faint memories of talking in your office about heritage and genealogy in general because this is about the time you were an expert on ancestors in the attic and it made me wonder how often do you get asked about genealogy and is this a, a hazard of being a historian everyone wants to talk about their family histories i think People want to ask questions about source sets, which is something I'm happy to discuss with them. And they want to share their their personal stories and they want to share their history as they understand it. And they also want to share their genealogical searches, right? Because in so many cases, it's it's been arduous. And in other cases, it's really been the, a case of a, of a project very, very dear to their heart over many, many, many years. And I'm happy to hear hear about their experiences and their journey as they discover more about their family as they sift through the kind of records that I sift through, but for very different reasons often. Mm -hmm. And as they, you know, come to develop an affinity with a community that they may never, never have visited or a country that they may never have gone to. It's funny that you, you mentioned, so the, the sources, because I have obviously, as, as I mentioned, I've, I've dug into this more off, uh, more recently than I had ever before. And I do think it was, uh, it was looking into sources when I was in the history program at the university of Guelph that, uh, you know, I, I got used to these sources and also working on the census project at the University of Guelph. But I remember very clearly in one of your classes um, trying to find a story, I think, from the Times in, in London. And uh, and you, you would kind of challenge us. I don't know if you gave us a month or a year or something to find yeah. a story and then research it. And that was micro, you know, microfilm flipping through That's right. <laughs> months of stories trying to find something that I felt like I could build off of. And that, that really got me comfortable with this stuff. So now I see census documents and I'm, uh, you know, and, and older documents and it's, uh, it's nothing. To, <laughs> I oh, that's that, terrific. That you know, what, I, I would caution people about the census because it's been my experience that the census itself is not uh, some yes. hallowed document that, uh, <laughs> that reveals the truth to you. It's as 100%. flawed a document in its structure and, and in the act of enumeration as, as any source is. But mm -hmm. uh, that's you know, the caveat. But if we are aware of the limitations of the source and the structural issues that obtain to any source, then I think we can proceed with caution to mm -hmm. find some really, really interesting information from it. But, you know, this isn't, this isn't, I don't mean this to be a genealogy podcast because it's not a genealogy podcast. Those exist, but this isn't one of them. Uh, I'm well aware that Scottish studies at the University of Guelph isn't genealogy focused. So can you tell me a little bit more about the Center for Scottish Studies? What is it all about? It's the largest research center of its kind outside Scotland. And we draw on records at the University of Guelph special collections, our Scottish collections, which are the largest of their kind outside the United Kingdom. We have both extensive printed records and manuscript or, or handwritten records too. And early on in its founding over 50 years ago, the University of Guelph's founding history chair, himself a, a distinguished scholar of Scottish church history, Presbyterian church history, 
decided that you know his interest would be the interest shared mm -hmm. by others. And given that he had the remit to build the department, and fortunately for me and for other like-minded people, he decided to develop a specialization. And now specializations are all the rage. You know, governments want universities not to replicate each other, but to find complementarities and and in mm -hmm. their specializations. And he built up a collection that was then declared a collection of national importance. He recruited other like-minded faculty and started to develop a graduate program, an undergraduate teaching program that was very heavily Scottish focused. And he was succeeded by other scholars who had other interests in the covenanting tradition in the 17th century, in Jacobitism in the 18th century, in 19th century industrialization, in the medieval period and early modern period, but other aspects than church history and gender, for instance, and economic and social history. Mm -hmm. But we've always built on and benefited from this kind of vision of Scotland in Guelph. And yes. um, I'm one of a long number of faculty members who feel so fortunate to be uh, to be able to study Scotland in Canada. The whole podcast is about gaining a greater appreciation for Scottish everything. So is there any way for non-academics like myself to participate or learn more about Scotland through the Centre for Scottish Studies? Is there anything that happens that is that is publicly accessible or or that I can follow or anything along those lines? Yeah, there, there are a lot of activity. In fact, we really welcome our partnership. The Scottish Studies Foundation chair, which I hold, and two others before me, Graham Morton and James Fraser, have held is due entirely to the generosity of the Scottish Canadian community. And uh, so, you know, we have our deepest roots in the community. We have a calendar of events every year that include guest speakers, workshops and colloquia. Increasingly, we use the medium of Zoom to reach people farther afield than southwestern Ontario. And we explore all kinds of topics uh, in a in a friendly way. You know, it's a scholastic environment, to be sure. We have an academic component of our research, but then we have an academic component of our research that is deeply grounded in our in our relationship with the uh, Scottish Canadian community and just the wider community too. I want to speak to the entire community, people of Scottish interests. You know, I want to talk to O'Flynn's who may have yes. not a drop of Scottish <laughs> blood in them. And I want to talk to anyone else who has an interest in Scotland, no matter their ethnic uh, background, no matter their, 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 uh, their affiliation or identity. I would love to have them more involved, frankly, mm -hmm. in the Scottish Studies Centre, because I think it would enrich it more, underscore themes like intercultural encounter, underscore some of the kind of messy histories of... Uh, personal histories that you've encountered yes. know, where you're not, you're 63% <laughs> Scottish, uh, rather more than you imagine, but pro Much probably more. rather less than some people who imagine themselves 100% Scottish to be. So yeah, we encourage people to contact us at scottish at uoguelph.ca. That's uoguelph, not you of Guelph. And uh, I request uh, that they be added to our uh, list serve when then they can be... Um, updated on any of the many activities that take place through the year. That'd be great. Yes. I'll, I'll make sure to share that as well in on social media and everything. Um, when this Thanks episode, a lot. Is thank you, Eamon. Yeah, of course. Uh, so what is your connection to Scotland? Is, is there, I know you studied there, obviously you, you studied at the university of Edinburgh, but does the James family have Scottish heritage? Well, none that I ever knew of. 
And I can tell you that I think your story is not unlike mine, Eamon. So I was raised in a family in which, you know, all four sides, all four grandparents claimed some degree of Irish ancestry. Mm -hmm. uh, on three sides, Irish Catholic, and on one side, Irish Protestant, though my grandfather converted uh, in order to, to marry my grandmother. So the name James, which was his last name, is not typically a, you know, it's not O'Flynn. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> but on all other sides, you know, there were celebrations of St. Paddy's Day. There was singing of when Irish eyes are smiling. There was a deep-seated belief that we were 100% Irish too, just mm -hmm. of both traditions, drawing on both traditions. And, uh, and lo and behold, you know, when I did the same DNA tests that I imagine you've done and yes. so many other of your listeners have done and discovered that I have a very substantial Scottish component uh, to me too. So, you know, what that confirmed, I guess, what I've always suspected, which is that very few people have, you know, a solid monolithic yes. ethnic identity. We, 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 as I said earlier, may be raised to believe in one. And it's not like we should cast it aside or think that we were lied to or mm -hmm. or not seek to identify with a group but um, it does raise interesting questions about our our own heritage and history and the complexities of our family's past and so in that respect i i guess i did come late to the knowledge that i had some scottish blood coursing through my veins to speak mm -hmm. of it in those terms but at no point did I know that when I was embracing Scotland as a place to study? And in fact, like I strongly encourage people not to feel they are only able to study places with which oh, they course. have some sort of blood <laughs> affiliation. Because, yes. you know, that's a, that's a very common thing. People feel that they have special insights or special identification or special uh, knowledge of a place if they either are from there or believe they are from there. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's the case at all. I think good critical scholarship can emanate from all all people with who share a commitment to study a place um, in a in a rigorous way, drawing on sources, uh, primary and secondary, and applying them in a in a disciplined way. But I won't lie; I do you know I, I did enjoy coming late to the knowledge that there's a bit of Scottish blood in me. And I think that allays some people who don't quite understand why someone who had no, no yes. Scottish blood, which is what I did tell people until about six months ago, um, was, was director of the Scottish study center. <laughs> yes. I think it was easier to explain someone like Graham Morton, who was one of my predecessors and James Fraser, who was another one of my predecessors were directors of the center. All Graham Morton had to do was talk, and you immediately, you couldn't possibly, it was unassailable, his uh, his credentials for that. That's right. He was role. a Fife boy, boy from Fife. Yeah. Uh, the, well, yeah, I, to me personally, I see it as, as it was, I it happened, and I said, this is an opportunity. There's an opportunity to learn more here than something that I haven't, I haven't focused on uh, before. And I think that that's the really nice thing about those kind of DNA tests is when you do find something that you're like, oh, that's a really interesting, I don't know anything about, you know, why am I Danish? Yeah. Where'd that come from? Right. And, and so there's, I think those things provide you the opportunity or the window to say, this is a great opportunity to try and learn more about that, but not to necessarily say I have some, I have a special connection. Uh, in my case, everyone's been here for, apart from my, my mother, who was born in, in England. Maybe we'll get to an English podcast someday. Uh, but but everyone else has been here for 
a hundred plus years. There's a, there's a, you know, in, in Canada itself, it's so it's such a Scottish country <laughs> in many ways that uh, it would be ludicrous for me to come from a place called Wallaceburg and think that there was no <laughs> chance I could, I could have any Scottish heritage at all. <laughs> it's true. And you know, I think, I think you make a good point. If you see it as an, uh, as an entryway, as an opening for you to explore a dimension of history that you might not have been as focused on because you didn't see it as part of your identity or part of your mm -hmm. heritage, then I think, uh, then I think it, it offers an, a wonderful opportunity for us all. So what is the what is the main thrust of your research these days? I know you've been traveling all over the place. You're, I, I, I try to follow you on Instagram and try and figure out where why you're going to a particular place, but I can never tell if you're if you're on vacation or if you're in if you're, if you're doing research because all of your photos are always of a building that's that's quite old. <laughs> well, I guess <laughs> I, it like helps that. when you study travel history, which is what yes. I do, Eamon. Uh, I won't lie. I, I love every second of my work. I wake up and have woken up every day for the past 23 years and, 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 and just told myself how lucky I am to have a job teaching students like you. You know, I remember you very vividly. I remember the first conversation we had after a big lecture in a very large lecture hall. I think it was about 300 students in that class. Um, and, and the students at Guelph are wonderful. My colleagues at Guelph are wonderful. And the research I do, which is, you know, Scottish travel history is great because as you might gather, the Scots went everywhere, <laughs> not just as permanent settlers, but uh, on a temporary basis as sojourners, as colonial administrators, as people engaged in commerce. And it is very easy to track and to trace Scots almost everywhere in the world, all corners of the world. And um, that's the core research interest that I'm pursuing right now, which is tourism and travel to Scotland and by Scots abroad. Very interesting. Yes. Yeah, they they're everywhere and they're easy to track because there's usually some bagpipes and some tartan around and <laughs> Well, do you know what? They're honestly the the accounts are I was just reading an account before I came on with you. A great account of a guy who just went to London. So we're not talking about going far afield when you didn't go to India or China or Latin America or British North America or the United States or any of the many or the Caribbean, many, many of the other places, Australia. He was just going south to London and he was describing images of London that mm -hmm. reminded him of Scottish locks. And I was I was quite amazed. And he was mm -hmm. talking about missing Scotland, of course. But he was also talking about where parts of London that were familiar to him because they kind of evoked Scotland to him. And that really surprised me. And uh, it's a it's a trope in a lot of travelogues where you hear people talking about the majesty of certain mountain ranges, but very often seeing them as inferior to the Scottish Highland ranges or to talk about some cities that are historical and beautiful in their own way, but not as beautiful as Edinburgh's new town. So yes. it's it's interesting how it you know, travelers often use it as a comparator. And I think it speaks either to a level of homesickness or mm -hmm. to a desire to find sort of, sort of a benchmark. And the benchmark by which we judge places is often the familiar. And I see this all the time in travel accounts that I'm reading. It's, it makes me think of uh, a documentary series that you may have heard of called Long Way Around. It was uh, Ewan McGregor and one of his yeah. friends went on motorcycles around the world. And it seemed like every country he went to, he said, it looks like Scotland. <laughs> Every time, you know, you'd be in like Mongolia and you'd be like, it looks exactly like Scotland. <laughs> but I think we're, I think we're all tempted to do that, aren't we? Mm -hmm. Like sometimes I, I catch myself thinking, oh, that this looks just like Toronto. And I was like, well, 
in what respect <laughs> and why am i benchmarking places by toronto where i'm originally from and yes. uh, yeah it's a it's a it's a it's a universal phenomenon and of course this was something i really noticed when scotland was, uh, scotland was being sold to tourists and the tourist market in the 19th and 20th century it'd also be described as you know the the parts of it would be described as the niece of you know yeah. uh the, the lowlands or something along those lines and so if there was a fashionable part of continental europe for instance mm-hmm. who would often or the alps of scotland yes. they would be transposed onto scott the scottish landscape as a way to again sell scotland to people who are perhaps more familiar with other landscapes Yes, the Scottish Alps. Uh, so you've spent a lot of time in, in Scotland, obviously. What's something about Scottish culture that surprised you or and may surprise other North Americans? Is there something that, you know, there's definitely tropes. Yeah, the cosmopolitanism of it, you know, like um, you could well have the name O'Flynn and still be a Scot, you know, going back a century and a half or more because mm-hmm. it's always been you know, quite a cosmopolitan place, especially in the modern period. There were mm-hmm. times, especially in the West of Scotland, where the Irish population was very, very substantial, you know, in the, in the, in the immediate pre um, post famine period, but also in the, some of the pre famine years too. And then, you know, there's been substantial Italian, Lithuanian communities, Jewish communities, and uh, now uh, Asian communities too. So I think that people, might arrive in a country with this idea that its heritage is fixed. Mm-hmm. But in fact, it's a really dynamic, modern, cosmopolitan country. And the biscuit tin images of Scotland, which I think, you know, we all we all that we all are entranced by, and I think they're kind of yes. romantic images. I think we at our peril ignore the modernity of Scotland the Mm -hmm. progressiveness of Scotland, the the ways in which it's a really, really, really exciting, new and diverse place. And I I love, I love that about it. I love that about it. Um, People going, looking only for bagpipes will find a host of other instruments and musical traditions, some much more recent. Yes. People going, looking only for kilts will find, you know, other forms of dress and other forms, frankly, of national dress at Mm -hmm. events. What, that are that are equally beautiful. Uh, people going for haggis, tatties, and neeps, which are a favorite of mine, will also discover an extraordinary culinary tradition that imports all kinds of uh, different cuisines. So that's what I that's what I surprised me most about Scotland, and I think it's one of the great selling points of Scotland today. Definitely. So a, a perfect, you know, I, I think I'd mentioned uh, Dire Straits before. The, the interesting thing, Mark Knopfler, the, the lead guitarist, lead singer of Dire Straits, who was born in Glasgow, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's born in Glasgow. I think his father was Ukrainian Jewish and nothing about Dire Straits would sound like anything traditional Scottish. And, you know, it's a, it's kind of a, it's a, and I mean, I, and that's going back 30, <laughs> 30 plus years at this point. But, but that, that story alone of that one band is a, is a mix of, of a few of those different uh, threads that you just, you just talked about. Yeah. And I think like there, that doesn't mean if you're not seeking out some traditional, you know, Kaylee, you won't find one. Or if you're looking for traditional cuisine, you won't find it. But um, I always encourage people not to go to Scotland just looking for that but to try and embrace all the all the dimensions of modern scotland and frankly you know scotland before the Mm -hmm. early 21st century which were diverse and and exciting too 
So I have many things that I want to talk about in this podcast in future episodes, but I'm looking for episode ideas. With all of your experience in Scotland, are there elements of Scottish culture that you've never really understood or that you'd like to understand better? Have you ever wondered why deep fried Mars bars? <laughs> I, I wondered why deep fried Mars bars became such a, a a trope of Scottish cuisine because I didn't I don't find them that often. I yes, really don't. Yeah. I really don't. So sometimes I I wonder, and I, you know, in the in the great big question about Scottish history is how come, how is it that that Highlandism or, or, or the Highlander became yeah. conflated with the the whole of Scotland when All in fact it, yes. you know it's it's. Uh, it's 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 a region of Scotland. Of course, this is a, a topic that really interests literary historians who are interested in Walter Scott, who are and and uh, cultural historians who who seek to understand what it was about the nature of the figure of the Highlands, the landscape of the Highlands, the discourse of the Highlands that made it, you know, congruent with Scottish identity really in the nineteenth century. So, uh, you know, if as much as anything, I'd love to know more about how people come to think of Scotland in very specific ways around very specific signs mm -hmm. that actually aren't things you experience on the ground or can find on the ground very easily. It's very hard to find someone uh, be kilted yes. on Princess Street unless they're going to, a, you know, a wedding. Yeah, it's very, it's frankly very hard to find a deep fried Mars bar in Scotland, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I'd, I'd love to know how we all develop these expectations around what we'd find in Scotland. Yes, I think I, I was in Edinburgh about it's probably six years ago now, and I remember thinking, well, I'll get there and I'll definitely have a deep fried Mars bar, and it never happened. And I think it's partly because I just didn't see signs, I didn't see anything. There's no reason to think it. But with the Highlands, they're also interesting because. There's definitely a time frame in Scottish history where Highlanders are considered essentially bar barbarians by by people from many other places. So for that, for so much imagery uh, from that that culture to become so you know so much a part of Scotland and how people envision Scotland is is amazing. It's yeah, very it's, it's, it's often very strange. This Id the idiom of primitivism or the idea that there's something yes. sort of noble. And, mm -hmm. and and wild about the Highlander, but there's also all kinds of, um, kind of misinterpretations and misunderstandings about about the Highlands, the complexity of Highland society, the nature of of the Highland clearances, which was a very controversial topic. But that would be a great one for you to to explore. You know, to get some historians in to talk about the Highland clearances in in ways that maybe provoke uh, mm -hmm. people into reevaluating their stereotypes about the Highland clearances and just Jacobitism, you know, as well in the 18th century, the fact that the Jacobite is not a figure who is monolithically opposed to the Hanoverian settlement at all. You know, the, the Highland, it's not a question of Highland versus Lowlands or England versus mm -hmm. Scotland, but so often the 18th century is, is painted in that way. It's a much, much, much more complex political dynamic than uh, than I think many people appreciate. And, you know, this has all been a learning experience for me as I've expanded from the very narrow focus of my PhD mm -hmm. to much broader teaching and research agendas. Uh, you know, we learn too. Professors are always in the process of learning and having their own uh, expectations and their own uh, understandings and interpretations challenged. And mm -hmm. that's a great thing about the job. And um, 
better historians than I am have been very, very, very good at illuminating the complexities of Highland society. So taking a step back to the things that you do know, because there, are, I know there are many things that I don't know about Scotland. What what are some subjects that I should absolutely cover on this podcast? Things that are so central to Scotland's past, present, or future that they just can't be left out. That it would be a ridiculous podcast about Scottish culture and, and history if it, if we, I didn't cover them. I think the Jacobites and yeah. the engagement of the entire Scottish nation in empire building. And I'm thinking in, in modern terms because I'm mm -hmm. a modern historian. I think uh, a definitely industrialization. You know, it might not be a topic that initially excites you, but to look at the you know the growth of the textiles industry, the growth of shipbuilding, tobacco processing, and you know the the implication of Scotland in the slave trade, which is something that historians are now illuminating mm -hmm. uh, very effectively. These are important topics. I think looking at Scotland as an immigrant society would be a really great topic because we imagine it, especially when we're outside scotland we imagine it so much as an as an immigrant society as a place mm -hmm. that, you know or as an emigrant society, immigrant rather, society as yes. a place where that sends people abroad and you know we we are living in a, in a country built by scots that's the kind of the stereotype right yes. among some people although i would challenge that even um, but to to look at it as an immigrant culture and an immigrant society built by people with all kinds of last names like O'Flynn and others mm -hmm. right from uh, the 19th century on and even before then. So I, I would challenge you to do that. And then I would challenge you to look at some of the ways in which Scotland has modernized in the later 20th and 21st century, deindustrialization, and then the birth of a new economy, you know, a new mm -hmm. digital economy and how all of that is both harnessing the talent that exists in Scotland and also trying to recast and I think understandings of Scotland. It, 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 we now, you know, Scotland is now is the, is the, is the brand, if you will, that's been adopted to try and promote Scotland. And I think it captures the, the essence of Scotland isn't yesterday. I mean, it's yes. important to know its history. I'm a historian. I'm the last person to critique history or to say, <laughs> don't study its history, but study its dynamic present as well. And then yes. look for that dynamism in its past. It was not a fixed past. It was not an evolving past. It wasn't a past that was ethnically monolithic in any kind of way. Um, it, it, it is an incredibly complex past that involved an admixture of people, a, a very, very, very interesting path towards industrial development mm -hmm. and then deindustrialization in the 20th century. And it's been a society that has received people as well as sent people abroad in large numbers too. That's a that's a great direction to be heading in. There are definitely, as I've put together the the sketches of what this could look like, and I've tried to balance out those elements of the modern versus the the historical and even in deeper even deeper historical. Uh, because yes, it's, and this is something that, that I've, I've come across with, with Ireland as well. This idea of there is a modern Ireland and it is different than, than perhaps your, your interpretation of what Ireland is. And I think Scotland has, has something similar there. And also, I mean, the, the modern Ireland, we can't draw too strong a contrast between modern Ireland and, you know, what existed before modern Ireland and same in, and the same with Scotland too. There's a continuity, you know, yes. as a, that's, and, and Immigration is an example, right? Immigration is that example. Immig immigration didn't begin to Scotland in the post-war period. 
don't mm-hmm. forget, people were leaving Scotland, emigrating from Scotland at the same time. Just if you can conceive of a continuum yes. of social, economic, and cultural change, I think that would be terrific. Things rarely happen like a light switch. They ra- rarely happen uh, overnight and a, a change happens. And it's a it's part of the kind of the, the rich tapestry of, of history, if you will. Uh, before we end, is there anything you would like to uh, like to plug? Where can we read your work or interact with the Center of, uh, for Scottish Studies? Or are we ever going to see you on TV again? Are you are you are you going to be a TV star? Once again, I, 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 you know what? I think my TV days are gone. I think uh, or they say I have a face for radio. And I think that's absolutely right. And I don't know your your listeners may judge you. They may not even think I have a of a voice for podcasts, in which case I'll probably just um, continue slogging away in the classroom where I have great, great fun. Um, but we love to have people connect with us uh, and uh, become involved with our activities at the Center for Scottish Studies at the University of Guelph. We're proud of our students. We have the most extraordinary students. We really, really do. And I recall teaching you, and you were one of them in that fourth year course in which I taught uh, Scottish history. And uh, and Eamon, you're a good advertisement for the kind of quality of students that we attract regularly, both to the University of Guelph and to uh, the Scottish Studies Center. So we like to show off their work. We really mm-hmm. do. Uh, we like to show off the research partnerships that we've developed with our uh, friends at the at Simon Fraser University and and with our partner institutions in Scotland too. So we have a dynamic um, culture at our center, and we have a very 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 active calendar of events. So I encourage people to visit our website at the Center for Scottish Studies at the University of Guelph, and I invite them to come involved to and to visit the collections too. We, we don't guard our collections. They're not just available yes. for, for <laughs> researchers, for credentialed researchers at the University of Guelph. They're available for anyone who wants to consult them. They, these are public documents that taxpayers have helped to acquire on our behalf and turn mm-hmm. into rich research documents that have helped to train students who've gone on to work in all kinds of fields of endeavor. So if those members of the public want to consult the documents for whatever purpose interests them. They are available for their consultation as well at the University of Guelph Library. You just have to book an appointment, um, but you can search through and see some of the absolutely exceptional records that we keep and, um, and, and know they're being put to good use by really, really, really strong students. I have to schedule an appointment myself sometime. It's been such a long time since I've been back to the University of Guelph. Thank you so much, Kevin, for for joining me today. And uh, I think this is a great way to kick off this show. Now, you know what? I, I have such happy memories of you as a student. I have happy memories of your cohort of students. And uh, it's just wonderful for me to be able to connect with you again and to use this platform to tell you about the Center for Scottish Studies and its uh, its activities and, uh, and, and to wish you really well with this podcast, uh, 63% Scottish. It's a great name. And I think you have a terrific mandate too, Eamon. All the best with it. That is all for this episode of 63% Scottish. Please connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for 63% Scottish and you'll find us. If you want to help our show keep growing, consider subscribing on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. This show is supported through promotional partnerships with the St. Andrews Society of Toronto, the Scottish Society of Ottawa, the St. Andrews Society of Los Angeles, 
the St. Andrews Society of Winnipeg, the Clans and Scottish Societies of Canada, the Singapore St. Andrews Society, the St. Andrews Society of the State of New York, and Chicago Scots. If you live in any of these places, I encourage you to find out how you can get involved. Links to all of these organizations are in the description for this episode. We also receive promotional support from the Scots Corner page on Facebook and the Center for Scottish Studies at the University of Guelph. This show owes a debt of gratitude to the Scottish Banner, the premier publication for Scottish people and those of Scottish heritage in Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and the United States of America. You can find all of our episodes on their website along with short articles on each subject. Again, links are in the episode description. Music in this episode is from Roman Senec Music. Thank you for listening to 63% Scottish. Until next time, cheers and slantia. <laughs>